Chapter Four of A Bid for Fortune or Dr. Nicholas Vendetta by Guy Boothby. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four I Save an Important Life. I travelled to Bournemouth by a fast train and immediately on arrival made my way to the office of Messrs. Screw and Matcham with a view to instituting inquiries regarding the yacht they had advertised for hire. It was with a senior partner that I transacted my business, a shrewd but pleasant gentleman. Upon my making known my business to him, he brought me a photograph of the craft in question, and certainly a nice handy boat she looked. She had been built, he went on to inform me, for a young nobleman who had made two very considerable excursions in her before he had been compelled to fly the country, and was only three years old. I learned also that she was lying in Pool Harbour, but he was good enough to say that if I wished to see her, she should be brought round to Bournemouth the following morning, when I could inspect her at my leisure. As this arrangement was one that exactly suited me, I closed with it there and then, and thanking Mr. Matcham for his courtesy, betook myself to my hotel. Having dined, I spent the evening upon the pier, the first of its kind I had ever seen listened to the band, and diverted myself with the thoughts of her, to whom I had plighted my troth, and whose unexpected departure from England had been such a sudden and bitter disappointment to me. Next morning, faithful to promise, the Enchantress sailed into the bay and came to an anchor, within the biscuit-throw of the pier. Chartering a dinghy, I pulled myself after her and stepped aboard. An old man and a boy were engaged washing down, and to them I introduced myself and business. Then for half an hour I devoted myself to overhauling her thoroughly. She was a nice enough little craft, well set up, and from her run looked as if she might possess a fair turn of speed. The gear was in excellent order, and this was accounted for when the old man told me she had been repaired and thoroughly overhauled that self-same year. Having satisfied myself on a few other minor points, I pulled ashore and again went up through the gardens to the agent's office. Mr. Matcham was delighted to hear that I liked the yacht well enough to think of hiring her at their own price, a rather excessive one, I must admit, and I don't doubt would have supplied me with a villa in Bournemouth and a yachting box in the Isle of Wight, also on their own terms, had I felt inclined to furnish them with the necessary order. But fortunately I was able to withstand their temptations, and having given them my cheque for the requisite amount, went off to make arrangements and to engage a crew. Before nightfall, I had secured the services of a handy lad in place of the old man who had brought the boat round from Pool. I was in a position to put to sea. Accordingly, next morning, I weighed anchor for a round trip round the Isle of Wight. Before we had brought the needles abeam, I had convinced myself that the boat was an excellent sailor, and when the first day's cruise was over, I had no reason to repent having hired her. Not having anything to hurry me, and only a small boy and my own thoughts to keep me company, I took my time, remained two days in the Solent, sailed round the island, put in a day at Ventnor, and so back to Bournemouth. Then after a day ashore, I picked up a nice breeze and ran down to Torquay to spend another week sailing slowly back along the coast, touching at various ports and returning eventually to the place I had first hailed from. In relating these trifle incidents, it is not my wish to bore my readers, but to work up gradually to that strange meeting to which they were the prelude. Now that I can look back in cold blood upon the circumstances that brought it about, and reflect how narrowly I escaped missing the one event which was destined to change my whole life, 
I can hardly realise that I attached such small importance to it at the time. Somehow I have always been a firm believer in fate, and indeed it would be strange, all things considered, if I were not. But when a man has passed through so many extraordinary adventures as I have, I not only come out of them unharmed, but happier and a great deal more fortunate than he has really any right to be. He may claim the privilege, I think, of saying he knows something about his subject. And mind you, I date it all back to that visit to the old home, and to my uncle's strange reception of me, for had I not got down into the country I should never have quarrelled with him, and if I had not quarrelled with him I should not have gone back to the inn in such a dungeon, and in that case I should probably have left the place without a visit to the bar, never having seen the advertisement, visited Bournemouth, hired the yacht, or... But there I must stop. You must work out the rest for yourself when you have heard my story. The morning after my third return to Bournemouth I was up at daybreak, and had my breakfast and was ready to set off on a cruise across the bay, before the sun was a hand's breadth above the horizon. It was a perfect morning, as any man could wish to see. A faint breeze just blurred the surface of the water. Tiny waves danced in the sunshine, and my barkie nodded to them as if she were anxious to be off. The town ashore lay very quiet and peaceful, and so still was the air that the cries of a few white gulls could be heard quite distinctly, though they were half a mile or more away. Having hove anchor, we tacked slowly across the bay, past the pierhead, and steered for old Harry Rock and Swanage Bay. My crew was forward, and I had possession of the tiller. As we went about between Canford Cliffs and Alum Chine, something moving in the water ahead of me attracted my attention. We were too far off to make out exactly what it might be, and it was not until five minutes later, when we were close abreast of it, that I discovered it to be a bather. The foolish fellow had ventured further out than was prudent, had struck a strong current, and was now being washed swiftly out to sea. But for the splashing he made to show his whereabouts, I should in all probability have not seen him, and in that case his fate would have been sealed. As it was, when we came up with him, he was quite exhausted. Heaving my craft too, I leapt into the dinghy and pulled towards him, but before I could reach the spot he had sunk. At first I thought he was gone for good and all, but in a few seconds he rose again. Then, grabbing him by the hair, I passed an arm under each of his and dragged him unconscious into the boat. In less than three minutes we were alongside the yacht again, and with my crew's assistance I got him aboard. Fortunately, a day or two before, I had had the forethought to purchase some brandy for use in case of need, and my Thursday Island experiences of having taught me exactly what was best to be done under such circumstances, it was not long before I had brought him back to consciousness. In appearance, he was a handsome young fellow, well set up, possibly nineteen or twenty years of age, and I had given him a stiff nobbler of brandy to stop the chattering of his teeth. I asked him how he came to be so far from shore. I am considered a very good swimmer, he replied, and often come out as far as this, but today I think I must have got into a strong outward current, and certainly, but for your providential assistance, I should never have reached home alive. You've had a very narrow escape, I answered, but thank goodness you're none the worse for it. Now, what's the best thing to be done? Turn back, I suppose, and set you ashore. But what a lot of trouble I'm putting you to. Nonsense, I've nothing to do. I count myself very fortunate in having been able to render you this small assistance. The breeze is freshening, and it won't take us any time to get back. Where do you live? To the left there, that house standing back on the cliff. I, I don't know how to express my gratitude. Just keep that till I ask you for it. 
and now as we've got a twenty minutes sail before us the best thing for you to do would be to slip into a spare suit of my things they'll keep you warm and you can return them to my hotel when you get ashore i sang out to the boy to come aft and take the tiller while i escorted my guest below into the little box of a cabin and gave him a rig out considering i am six feet two and he is only five feet eight the things were a trifle large for him but when he was dressed i couldn't help thinking what a handsome well-built aristocratic-looking young fellow he was the work of fitting him out accomplished we returned to the deck the breeze was freshening and the little hooker was ploughing her way through it nose down as if she knew that under the circumstances her best was expected of her are you a stranger in bournemouth my companion asked as i took the tiller again almost i answered i've only been in england three weeks i'm home from australia australia really oh i should so much like to go there his voice was very soft and low more like a girl's than a boy's and i noticed that he had none of the mannerisms of a man at least not of one who has seen much of the world yes australia's as good a place as any other for a man who goes out there to work i said but somehow you don't look to me like a chap who's used to what is called roughing it pardon my bluntness well you see i've never had much of a chance my father is considered by many a very peculiar man he has strange ideas about me and so you see i've never been allowed to mix with other people but i'm stronger than you think and i shall be twenty october next if you don't mind telling me what is your name i suppose there can be no harm in letting you know it i was told if ever i met anyone and they asked me not to tell them but since you saved my life it would be ungrateful not to let you know i am the marquis of beckenham is that so then your father is the duke of glenbarth yes do you know him never set eyes on him in my life but i heard him spoken of the other day i did not add that it was mr matcham who during my conversation with him had referred to his grace nor did i think it well to say that he had designated him the mad duke and so the boy i had saved from drowning was the young marquis of beckenham well i was moving in good society with a vengeance this boy was the first nobleman i had ever clapped eyes on though i knew the count de panaroff well on thursday island but then foreign counts and shady ones at that ought not to reckon perhaps but you don't mean to tell me i said at length that you've got no friends don't you ever see any one at all no i'm not allowed to my father thinks it better not as he does not wish it of course i have nothing left but to obey i must own however i should like to see the world to go a long voyage to australia for instance but how do you put in your time you must have a very dull life of it oh no you see i have never known anything else but then i have always a future to look forward to as it is now i bathe every morning i have my yacht i ride about the park i have my studies and i have a tutor who tells me wonderful stories of the world oh your tutor's been about has he oh dear me yes he was a missionary in the south sea islands and has seen some very stirring adventures a missionary in the south sea islands eh perhaps i know him were you ever in those seas why i've spent most of all my life there were you a missionary you bet not the missionaries and my friends don't cotton to one another but they are such good men that may be still as i say we don't somehow cotton i'd like to set my eyes upon your tutor well you will i think i see him on the beach now i expect he's been wondering what has become of me i've never been so long before well you're close home now as safe as eggs in a basket another minute brought us into as shallow water as i cared to go accordingly heaving to i brought the dinghy alongside and we got into her then casting off i pulled my lord ashore a small clean-shaven parsonish-looking man 
with the regulation white choker, stood by the water waiting for us. As I beached the boat, he came forward and said, "'My lord, we have been very anxious about you. We feared you had met with an accident. I have been very nearly drowned, Mr. Baxter. Had it not been for this gentleman's prompt assistance, I should never have reached home again.' you should really be more careful my lord i have warned you before your father has been beside himself with anxiety about you eh i said to myself somehow this does not sound quite right anyhow mr baxter i have seen your figurehead somewhere before but you were not a missionary then i'll take my affidavit turning to me my young lord held out his hand you never told me your name he said most reproachfully dick hatteras i answered and very much at your service mr hatteras i shall never forget what you have done for me and i am most grateful to you i hope you will believe i know that i owe you my life here the tutor's voice chipped in again as i thought rather impatiently come come my lord this delay will not do your father will be growing still more nervous about you we must be getting home they went off up the cliff path together and i returned to my boat mr baxter i said to myself again as i pulled off to the yacht i want to know where i've seen your face before i've taken a sudden dislike to you i don't trust you and if your employer's the man they say he is well he won't either then having brought the dinghy alongside i made the painter fast clambered aboard and we stood out of the bay once more End of chapter four